Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the Executive Pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to preach a a third one, a last one, most likely a last one in uh, this series on Breakthrough Prayer. I always add that just in case I want to change my mind during the week. Um, but uh, we're going to get to, I, in the middle to the end of this message, we're going to get to some truth that I think is going to encourage you uh, really, really deeply. And on Thursday, I started work on the message, and uh, I came home at the end of the day, and my wife, LaDawn, said, asked me, so how did it go? And I said, well, it just kind of feels uh, blah. And so she prayed for me, and it, it's interesting. I don't know if God's given her a special calling or a gifting on this, but whenever she prays for me for a message, it's like the next day I get up, and suddenly it was just like, whew, this stuff was there, and uh, like I said, I think you're going to be encouraged, but this is the third one we're doing in Breakthrough Prayer, and the Bible makes many outrageous, outrageous promises uh, about prayer, and I'm just going to read you another one. I've been reading you lots of them. Uh, we've looked at James 5, and we've looked at Matthew 7, and we're going to look today in John and 1 John, but John 14, 13 to 14, uh, Jesus says this, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And there's just a whole host of promises like this in the Scripture about prayer. And part of my purpose in preaching this uh, series uh, this year has just been that if we actually look at, at God's promises here to encourage us, I feel like God has been inviting us in this series, come to me, church. Come to me and ask me your big request. Come to me and discover me to be good. Outrageous promises about prayer throughout the scriptures. And so far, we've looked at three breakthrough prayer principles. And today, I want to look at a fourth one that's really, really important. But we'll just quickly review here. We've looked at the importance of perseverance, that uh, prayer is only powerful if you persevere in it. And we've looked at praying promises from God's word. And then uh, two weeks ago, we looked at praise and thanksgiving. But I couldn't leave this this message series without doing this uh, fourth point, because there's just so much uh, biblical teaching on this one point. It's just, it's a huge component of the Bible's teaching uh, on prayer. And in fact, to start, well, on Thursday when I was starting work on the message, I, I just put down a whole bunch of verses, and it wasn't even all the Bible's verses on this point, but I just put a bunch that fill more than a page. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge key component of the Bible's teaching on prayer. And so I'm going to start, uh, to get there, I'm going to start with John chapter 17, and uh, John chapter 17, uh, it was three or four or five years ago. I'm not clear on the time, but a few years ago, I was in my devotions, and John 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying for his disciples just before he dies on the cross. And uh, it's a wonderful prayer. I mean, we could do a whole series on John chapter 17, because if you want, if, I mean, anybody, just pay attention to these, even these few verses, but if you want a good homework assignment for the week, Go home. If you have loved ones you're praying for, you know, your kids or your spouse or other people in your life, if you want to know, what do I pray for some of my loved ones, go to John 17 and find out what God prays to God. Find out what Jesus prays to the Father for his disciples. There's like, it's a treasure trove of amazing things to pray, okay? I'm not going to read you the whole thing. I just, I'm going to read you from verses 13 to verse 19, which is the, the thing that stuck out at me a few years ago in my devotion. It's going to be the launching pad for this message. But verse 13, Jesus says this, But now I am coming to you, the Father, so he's in prayer, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Already that's a great thing to pray. 
that they may have Jesus' joy fulfilled in themselves. That's a great thing to pray for your spouse, for your kids, um, for people in your family, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, that's a very interesting prayer, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Again, an amazing prayer request here. We could preach a message on each one, but sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then we come to verses 18 and 19. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And now this is the part a few years ago in my devotions that just jumped out and grabbed me. I saw something that I had not seen before. It just, it just came alive for me. And he says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself in order that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Okay? So for their sake, I consecrate myself in order that they also may be sanctified in the truth. What I find so interesting here is Jesus did not just pray for his disciples. He also obeyed. Consecration was part of his prayer. So he prays, I pray that you would sanctify them in the truth in verse 17. And then in verse 19, he says, and now I consecrate myself for their sake in order that they may be sanctified in the truth. In other words, his obedience was part of getting the answer to prayer. Jesus did not just pray, he obeyed. Now, this, that, that just leaped out at me. As I was reading that, I just thought to myself as a parent praying for my kids, for their sake, I consecrate myself. I don't just pray. See, some of us, prayer is like an island in our life. We have our prayer life and the things we're praying for, and then we have the rest of our life. But when Jesus offered up his prayers to the Father, he didn't just offer up his prayers to the Father, he offered up his life. And it's as he offered up his life with his prayers, that's when his prayers became powerful. For their sake, I offer myself, I consecrate myself, in order that they may be sanctified in the truth. And so if we want to see prayer powerful, and there's all these outrageous promises in the scripture about prayer. If we want to live those promises and see those promises become a reality, we have, to, we have to make prayer not an island in our lives over here, but we have to also, at the same time that we offer up our prayers to God, we offer up our lives to him in obedience and worship. And as we offer up our lives together with our prayers, that's when our prayers really come alive and God begins to work in powerful ways. And this is not just a principle I pulled out of this passage. Uh, this is a principle that is throughout Scripture, the marriage between prayer and obedience. Literally, like I said, I, I took up more than a page just putting little verses from Scripture all over it when I started looking at this message, and there's many more. This is a huge foundational teaching in Scripture that prayer and obedience go hand in hand. And when you marry the two, that's why I couldn't, I couldn't leave a, a, a series called Breakthrough Prayer. I couldn't leave this series and not talk about obedience because it's when prayer gets married to obedience, that's when prayer really becomes powerful. And so I'll just read you several passages just to help you see that this is a, a huge biblical theme. And again, this is all over the Gospel of John. This is all over the book of 1 John, which we will get to towards the end of this message. But let me just show you even a few from the Old Testament. Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. So the wicked can pray, that's one thing, but those prayers aren't powerful. See, the promises and the outrageous promises in Scripture actually don't apply to everyone. It's not that prayer is powerful, God is powerful. And when the wicked pray, God doesn't hear. But when the righteous pray, he does hear. Obedience and prayer together. How about 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14? One of the most famous uh, prayer passages in the Bible gets quoted all the time, okay? All the time people quote this one. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face. 
So there's the first part. God's not going to move if we don't pray, okay? If they pray and seek my face, if they pray and seek my face. But then there's a second thing, and turn from their wicked ways, prayer and obedience. So if my people who are called by my name will pray and seek my face. So if you don't pray, you're not going to see God move. But at the same time, and turn from their wicked ways, prayer and obedience, then this is where the power is. I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Okay? See, if we offer up our prayers, but we don't offer up our lives in obedience, it shows that our prayers are seeking after God isn't really sincere. If I offer him only my prayers, and then I just want to go and live however I want to live, that's not a powerful prayer. It's not a sincere prayer. But what happens is if I offer up my life together with my prayers, now I come to God and I pray big prayers for my marriage or I pray big prayers for my health or I pray big prayers, whatever it is, my kids, the things going on in my life. If I offer up my prayers and now I also offer him my life, that is a sincere prayer. And we've looked at so many promises in this series already that a sincere prayer is always answered by God. Maybe not totally exactly the way you prayed that it would be answered, but he always answers. And we looked at that two weeks ago right? Powerful. These amazing promises in scripture. And again, like I said, this is all over the scriptures. Psalm 34. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? That's me. I think most of us are probably in that category, right? What man or woman is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? I want to see good. Well, he's got some simple advice. He's got some dietary and, and exercise advice, right? And Take this supplement and you'll enjoy a good life. Nope. He says, uh, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You want to have a good life and you want to be blessed by God? He says, turn away from pornography. Turn away from gossip. Turn away from lying and exaggeration. These are not, uh, you know, things for Sunday school. This is, these are things for all of us. Turn away from these things. And then what? Now, notice, David is going to turn, tie together, turning away from these things with our prayers. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward the cry. Those who turn away from evil to do good. Those who turn away from gossip, who turn away from lying and dishonesty and all these things. Who turn away from evil to do good. It says the eyes of the Lord are looking throughout the whole earth for people who will not just offer up to him their prayers, but they will also offer up to him their lives. His eyes are looking all over the earth for those people, and his ears are constantly towards their cry. You want to pray powerful prayers? Offer up to God your prayers, and along with those, offer up to him your life in obedience. For their sake, I consecrate myself. Face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth when the righteous cry for help. The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Now, I could go on and on and spend lots of time in the rest of this message going through passage after passage after passage after passage that shows you throughout the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, how obedience married to prayer is powerful, okay? But I'm actually going to stop there. I've just showed you a few verses now. I'm going to stop there, and we need to go and park somewhere else for a big chunk of time. And then at the end of this message, we're going to come back to obedience. But we're going to come back to obedience from a whole new direction. I think it's going to fill you with joy. And the reason I don't want to spend any more time looking at the, the more verses that just pile on on this truth of prayer and obedience mixed together powerful is I know right away what will begin to happen to a number of you as I preach prayer married to obedience is powerful. And what will begin to happen to a bunch of you is when you see this, prayer plus obedience equals power, is some of you will begin to get this feeling when you go to prayer, like you have to earn your answers to prayer 
by being good enough. I mean, that's almost what these verses seem to be teaching. That's almost what this point seems to be teaching is prayer plus obedience equals power. Therefore, maybe that's the reason my prayers aren't getting answered is I'm not obeying enough. And then what happens is you begin to neurotically and obsessively and anxiously check yourself whenever you're praying. Maybe, have I been good enough? Have I listened enough? Have I fasted enough? Have I obeyed enough? Was that still small voice telling me something? And we're constantly looking back, checking ourselves, checking ourselves, checking ourselves. Have I been good enough to get my prayers answered? If I just stop this message here, that's where a number of you could take this message. And I want to tell you right now, if that lie gets into your head that you have to earn answers to prayer with God, it will destroy your prayer life. It'll destroy your faith. When the Bible says that prayer and obedience are powerful together, it is not teaching us a new form of condemnation whereby every time we go to prayer, we obsess over, have I been good enough? You can't be good enough to earn answers to prayer with God. And if you go to prayer and you constantly check yourself to see if you've been good enough to earn answers to prayer from God, you are living under condemnation. And so I want to just take a few moments and I want to, I want to actually show you the difference here and then we're going to look at some theology and then we're going to come back to obedience, the true foundation for obedience, which is not condemnation. But I want to show you the difference between guilt and, and, and condemnation, okay? Guilt and condemnation, it's very important that we learn to discern between those two things because they feel the same. Guilt and condemnation in our emotions, in our heart, feel the same, but they're two very, very different things. Condemnation will make you feel like you have to earn things from God in order to get answers to prayer, and guilt uh, will not do that, okay? So let me, let's spend a few minutes on guilt uh, and condemnation. Guilt is a good thing, okay? Ultimately, guilt is a good thing. It's not a fun thing, but ultimately, guilt is a good thing. Guilt is the feeling that happens in a healthy person with a conscience. When I do something bad... Like, let's say I, I say something terrible to my wife or I yell at my kids. Guilt is the thing that makes me feel bad for doing that, which motivates me to go back and say sorry and make the relationship right, okay? That is a good thing. If I yell at my kids or do something terrible to my wife, and if I don't feel bad about it, that actually shows something is wrong with me, okay? So guilt makes me feel bad. When I've done something bad, a bad action... Guilt comes along and says, I feel bad about that action, I need to, and it motivates me to restore the relationship and motivates me not to do it again, okay? So here's some things about guilt. Guilt is always about specific sinful actions. You do something wrong, you feel, you feel bad for doing that wrong thing. You want to go and make things right, okay? Guilt goes away after you make things right because it was about an action, you did something you should have, now you go to your spouse, you make things right, and the guilt goes away because you've restored the relationship. Once the relationship is restored, the guilt goes away. Okay, that's guilt. Uh, guilt draws you towards God. When you commit a sin, uh, guilt is the thing that takes you back to prayer. It doesn't drive you away from prayer. Guilt pulls you into prayer to say, oh Lord, I'm so sorry I did that. I'm really sorry. Guilt draws you into prayer to confess and make things right with God and with others. That's guilt. Guilt is about specific wrong actions. Now you go and you make things right. Condemnation is, feels the same. Inside of us, condemnation and guilt. This is why we have to learn to discern between them because condemnation is something we have to fight against. Condemnation feels the same as guilt, but condemnation is not about specific actions. Condemnation is about me. It's about my identity. So guilt says, I feel bad for yelling at my kids or doing something wrong or lying or whatever. Now I'm going to go and confess and make things right. Condemnation says, I'm a worthless person. Okay? 
Guilt says, I said some things to my kids there that I shouldn't have said. I'm going to go say sorry. Condemnation says, I'm a terrible person. I'm a terrible dad, I'm a terrible person, I should never have had kids, and I'll never be different. Guilt is tinged with hope, because guilt says, this is not who I am, and this is not who I want to be, I'm going to make this right. Condemnation says, I'm worthless, I can never change. So what, what the, the effect of it is, that guilt makes me want to come out in the open and confess, because it's about an action. Condemnation is about my worth and my value. Condemnation makes me want to hide. Condemnation doesn't draw me closer to God. Condemnation makes me not want to pray, because I'm not good enough. It subconsciously makes me turn away from God, that when I go to God in prayer, whether I say it or not, I don't feel like he wants to answer my prayers, because I feel worthless. I don't feel like I'm good enough. That's condemnation. It's about me. It's not about specific actions, which is why condemnation is relentless. It never goes away because it's about me. Guilt goes away after I make the action right because it's not about who I am. It's about what I've done. Condemnation is about me. It never goes away. It's relentless. Condemnation is a weapon from the evil one to destroy us because it'll keep you from praying. It'll keep you from praying big prayers. It's from your flesh. Your flesh will accuse you and Satan will accuse you. That's condemnation. You are worthless. You'll never change. You'll never be good enough. You're not spiritual enough. How can you even dare pray this kind of a prayer? You, God does, isn't listening to you this morning in your devotions and you just feel distant from him. All of that is condemnation. And condemnation is actually spiritual warfare. We have got to learn to stand up against condemnation. Guilt is good. When I do bad, I should feel bad. I should go and make things right. Condemnation is evil and will destroy you. And it's actually a skill. We can actually learn, and there's truth in the Bible I'm going to get to in just a moment. There's some theology we need to learn about prayer that is so important in this fight. But we actually need to learn in our prayers. Many of us labor under a cloud of condemnation, and this is why we have a very difficult time engaging with God in prayer. We really don't feel like he wants to answer us or that he really loves us or that we're worthy of having our prayers answered. And there's a place we can go when we learn the truths of God's word where when I feel condemnation in my prayer time, I can stand and, when I, and I feel it too. We all labor at times under condemnation. And there's times when I feel it in my prayer time soon, I think it just doesn't feel today like God's here. It doesn't feel like he wants to listen to me. It doesn't feel like I'm good enough. And these are the things I've thought and these are things I've done. And that condemnation is there, makes you not want to pray, makes you, doesn't draw you towards God like guilt does. It tries to push you away. And in those moments, I just speak out loud. I just speak truths out loud. I say, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. And I just start to pray out loud. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you that you accept me here today. Thank you that you want to answer my prayers. I just start, because we have to learn to fight against condemnation. And here's, the, here's why fighting against condemnation works. Because condemnation is not based in reality, it's based on a lie. The reason we need to fight against condemnation and the reason fighting against it works is because condemnation is not based in reality. It is based on a lie. We are not under condemnation. And this is why we need to look at a little bit of theology now and then we're going to come back to obedience because we need our obedience to be built on a joyful foundation, on the true foundation. But we are not under condemnation. Now, Jesus has many roles and many titles. He's our Savior. He's our Redeemer. He's our Messiah, he's king, he's all these things. There's one role of Jesus, one title that we don't talk about very much, but there's actually an entire book of the New Testament that the main theme of this book is, is, is about this role of Jesus. And that is the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews, one of the main themes, one of the central purposes and points of the entire book of Hebrews in the New Testament is to prove to us and show us that Jesus is our high priest. Now, we don't talk a lot about Jesus being our high priest. And many Christians today, because we don't know much about the Old Testament, 
It just doesn't make sense to us. That's why we don't talk about it. We don't know how good that is. But Jesus being our high priest is a huge, key, wonderful truth for our prayer lives. Okay? So let's go back to the Old Testament just for a few minutes. And let's talk about what is a high priest. Well, in the Old Testament, the high priest was a very special person. Okay? When God, when, when God took the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, in Exodus chapter 33, I think it's verse 5, God said to Moses, um, because they were doing some wicked things, and not because they were wicked, we, we would do the same thing. The children of Israel are a perfect representation of all of humanity. So God takes the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, and he says to Moses, finally in Exodus 33, and he's only been with them, you know, a few days, and he says to Moses, if my presence goes up with this people, I'm going to kill them all. Literally, that's what he said. Because he's a holy God. And these people are full of covetousness and envy and pettiness and grumbling and, and every sin, just like we are. And God said to Moses, a holy God, I, I just, I cannot. I am good. I am pure. I am loving all these things. If, I'm, if my presence goes up with these people, I will have to kill them all. That's Exodus, Exodus 33. Okay? And of course, Moses prays and there's a whole bunch of things going on. But anyway, out of this, God institutes the tabernacle system. Okay? So he has Moses uh, make a tabernacle. Now, what's a tabernacle? A tabernacle is essentially a portable temple, okay? So if I was translating the, the Hebrew scriptures, I would maybe put in brackets there, portable temple. So instead of a temple made with walls of stone and marble and all those sorts of things, the Israelites were wandering all over the desert. They needed a portable temple, so they made this one out of curtains. It's a tent, and there's curtains, okay? And so I got a diagram there. This is what the tabernacle looked like. The, the uh, around the outside of it, 75 feet by 150 feet, uh, they had this fence with stands and curtains. And inside there was this uh, huge courtyard with a gate on the east side. Um, and any Israelite could go into that courtyard, okay? Any Israelite could go into that courtyard from any tribe to offer sacrifice, okay? Then within the courtyard was the tent, which was the tabernacle itself, Okay? And there was two rooms in the, in, the, in the tabernacle, in the tent, but only one entrance, again, on the east side. And the first room was called the holy place, and only the, the uh, Levites, only the priests could go into the holy place. Now, there was a bunch of, you know, furniture and different things inside the holy place and outside the courtyard. I haven't diagrammed it all. I didn't want it to get uh, too complicated. But only Levites and priests. So any Israelite could go into the outer courtyard to make sacrifices. Only priests could go into the holy place. And we could preach a whole series on the, on the symbols and what this, how this applies to the Christian life today. But anyway, any priest could go in the holy place. Then there was a curtain, a very thick veil, uh, that hung between the holy place and the next room, which was the Holy of Holies. And uh, nobody could go into the Holy of Holies except one person. That's the high priest. And even he could only go in once a year. And the reason was because in the Holy of Holies was where God's presence literally came to rest. So Exodus 33, God says to Moses, if my presence is in, in amongst the sinful people, I'm going to kill them all. And that's not because they were bad people. That's because they were regular people. Okay? So God comes up with this tabernacle system. He wants to be among the Israelites. He wants to be close to them, but he can't have his presence in and among them. So he sets up this tabernacle system, and he, his presence comes to reside only in the holy of holies. Okay? And this is to, was to protect the people, okay? And so then what would happen is once a year on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Now first, he would offer a sacrifice for himself because if his own sins weren't covered for, 
And he went into the Holy of Holies. Literally, he would die. People died in there. That was the, it was the literal presence and glory of God resided in that Holy of Holies room, in the tent room, in that, in that tent, okay? The glory cloud, if, if you want to call it, that was inside of that place. And so first, uh, you know, there was all kinds of solemn ceremonies and the, and the high priest had to observe them all perfectly or else he would die. So he would first uh, offer sacrifices for himself because if his sins weren't covered for, he would die. Then he would offer sacrifices for the nation of Israel. And then on this day of atonement, he would enter into the Holy of Holies as a representative of the entire nation. So the whole nation couldn't fit into the Holy of Holies there. So the high priest would represent the entire nation, and on their behalf, he would go into the very physical presence of God, and he would take some of the blood from the sacrifice, and he would sprinkle it on what was called the mercy seat. Now, what was the mercy seat? Well, in the Holy of Holies, there was one piece of furniture, okay? It was the Ark of the Covenant, okay? Inside the Ark, you had a little uh, jar of manna. You had uh, Aaron, that's Moses' brother's uh, staff, and then you also had, most importantly, you had the, the Ten Commandments on the very stone, the very Ten Commandments, tablets of, of stone that God had written with his finger uh, on Mount Sinai and given to Moses, okay? So the law, that represents the entire law, was inside the Ark of the Covenant. Then over top of the covenant was a lid, and on top of that lid was, was what is called the cherubim or these, these two uh, angels, uh, statues of angels, okay? And the mercy seat was what was called there was what the lid in between the two angels, that lid, that portion was the mercy seat, and it's literally the, the cloud of God's presence would hover just above that mercy seat. Okay, and so the high priest representing the entire people, because the whole nation couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, just the high priest, representing the entire nation, he would walk in, he would take the blood from the sacrifice, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Now, this, the, the symbolism here is profound because the law is sitting inside that Ark of the Covenant, and the, and the law says all the reasons God needs to kill this people. And it's not because the law is bad or strict. The law is just good. It says, don't covet. We shouldn't covet. How many people have coveted this year? Law says don't commit adultery. How many people have committed adultery and lust? The law says don't commit idolatry. How many people have committed adultery? The law says is very good. It's the people who are bad. And the law says all the reasons why a holy God should lash out and destroy this people. But now the high priest representing the entire nation comes in and sprinkles the blood on this mercy seat. Notice how the blood goes over top of the law. And now, because the blood is covering over top of the law, God does not do to the people what the law says he should do and what they deserve. And for another year, he has mercy on them, he listens to their prayers, and he blesses them. Because he doesn't look again at what the law says he should do to them, what they deserve, he looks at the blood that covers the law. Now, of course, the animal sacrifice in the Old Testament couldn't wash away sin. So every year, they would have to go in and do this again on the Day of Atonement. And, but they were acting out the Old Testament. The whole reason for this tabernacle system and the high priest system was to show us parallels of what Jesus was going to do for us. And so for 1,500 years, they acted out this, this thing, and, and later not with the tabernacle, but with the temple, but they acted out this tabernacle high priest system. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus dies on the cross. And shortly thereafter, we have the book of Hebrews written. And the book of Hebrews is written to tell us all the things about Jesus being our high priest and what this means and why he's a better high priest uh, than the Old Testament ones. But the first thing is that Jesus has now gone into God's presence representing us. Okay? Now this is really, really important. 
Jesus has now, because that's what the high priest did. The high priest represented the entire people in the very presence of God. Jesus now represents us in the very presence of God. He goes on our behalf. Now, this should, profound, this should have a profound effect on the way we pray. And there's lots of places we could go in Hebrews. I just have time to look at one passage here, here from Hebrews chapter 4. And we'll look at verses 14, and we'll look at a few verses here to, to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, okay, so this is, this is, this is really good. I just have to stop here even before we get to the rest of the passage where it brings us all together. But it's interesting that Jesus actually represents us in a couple different ways. As high priest, he literally just represents us in the presence of God when God is thinking of us. Like in the Old Testament, when God was thinking of the people, he wasn't looking at all their sins. He would look on the Day of Atonement at the high priest who represented them, who then covered the mercy seat with blood because the high priest represented the rest, okay? And so in that way, Jesus represents us is that when God now looks, he's not looking at all of our sins, he's looking at Jesus who represents us. But here in this passage, we see Jesus represents us in a second way too, almost like a lawyer in that he sympathizes with us. So not only does he represent us as our high priest, but like a lawyer, he's on our side and he sympathizes with us. And so as our flesh is accusing us, yeah, you're not good enough. Look at what you said to your kids yesterday. Look what you said at work the other day and da-da-da. Look at when you lost your temper over there and you did this. And as your flesh is accusing you and the devil is accusing you, Jesus is sitting there with the Father in the presence of the Father, sympathizing with your weaknesses because he never sinned, but he knows what it feels like. He knows what it feels like to be tired. He knows what it feels like to be exhausted. He knows what it feels like to be hated. He knows what it feels like to suffer. And so he sits there as these accusations rain down from your own flesh. He's, he is defending you to the Father. And he says, Father, I know what it's like to be tired. I know what it's like to be exhausted. He shouldn't have done that, but I know why. And, he, and, I'm, and I'm representing him anyway. And my blood has covered all of that because unlike animal sacrifice, which just temporarily covers, his blood has the power to wash it away. But as you go to prayer now, you realize Jesus represents me. I'm not going into the Father's presence because of what I've done. I'm going based on what Jesus has done. And he sympathizes me with me, which means the whole time I'm in there praying and my thoughts are accusing me about how bad I am, how worthless I am. At the very same time, he's arguing against my own accusations and the devil's accusations against myself. And he's saying, I understand. I love them, Father. I want you to answer anyway. But he sympathizes with us in our weakness. Because he too went through all that stuff. Well, next verse, verse 16, and this is how it should profoundly affect the way we pray. Let us then with confidence. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. How many of us, when we pray, draw near to God with confidence? The fact that Jesus is our high priest means, again, we don't, we, most of us, I would venture to say many of us, maybe most of us, a lot of the time, if not all of us, much of the time or some of the time at the very least, we almost shudder to go into prayer. We almost, we almost back into prayer sometimes and we're afraid to ask God some of these things because we don't really feel worthy. Why would he answer my prayer request? Why would he listen to me? Is he actually close? Does he actually care? But when you realize that, and the reason is because we're, we're judging ourselves. We're looking at the past week and going, ah, oh, 
I have not been the kind of person that I need to be. I've not been the kind of person I need to be at work. I've not been the kind of person in terms of my integrity, in terms of my thought life. Why? And God knows all this. How can I pray? But what you have to realize is Jesus is our high priest. It's one of his roles. When you go into prayer, you don't stand based on how you've lived the last week. You stand on how he lived and he was perfect. That's his job as high priest. He represents us before God. God's not looking at how pathetic you've been. He's looking at Jesus. And Jesus says, he's one of mine. He's one of my people. I represent him. I'm the high priest. And he sympathizes with your weakness, which means in addition to that, he's arguing on your behalf the whole time. Every accusing thought you have, he's throwing a thought out there and going, I get it. I know why he did that. I forgive him. My blood covers it. So the writer of Hebrews says, this should radically change the way we pray. When you understand this truth, this is not a made-up thing. This is in the Word of God. Jesus is our high priest, which means that when we pray, we are to approach the throne of grace with confidence. I actually belong here today. Not in a disrespectful way, but I actually belong here today with you, Father, because Jesus is my high priest. I'm standing on who he is, not who I am. And this means we're all on a level foundation. See, there's so much comparing in the, in, in the Christian life. And some of you, you go to prayer and you just think, God's not going to answer my prayers. He's going to answer, you know, Chris's because he preaches on the weekend, so he must be spiritual. Or, or you've read some of these biographies of spiritual giants from the past, and you think, oh, you know, that person, he's going to answer his prayers because he was a prayer warrior or whatever, but not mine. We all go to the Father on a completely level playing field because we all go based on Jesus, not based on ourselves. Let us then with confidence draw near, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, on Sunday afternoons, uh, my brothers and sisters and, and, and I and our wives and spouses and kids, we all go to my parents when they're around. And we go to my parents on Sunday afternoons and we hang out. And today we're going to go there today and watch the, the Super Bowl. May the Patriots win. But anyway, uh, that's not from the Bible. But... Um, <laughs> When, uh, when we go there, I don't timidly go there, you know, kind of wondering, should I be here today? Will they kick me out today? I haven't been a good person today. I thought bad thoughts. I don't go like that. I don't knock on the door. I don't ring the doorbell. I mean, I just barge in straight to the kitchen. What's to eat? I just, it's just confident, right? I'm supposed to be here. You can't, you can't get rid of me. And, uh, right? You know, if I go there during the week, just to, to clarify, I don't barge in uh, you know, during the week in an evening or something, I don't want to see something I don't want to see, right? But, but that has nothing to do with confidence. But on a Sunday afternoon, I'm just in. I'm confident. Let us then with confidence. It's that same confidence. It's not based on what you've done. It's based on what Jesus has done. And he sympathizes with our weaknesses and he's arguing on your behalf and he represents you as high priest. This is one of his roles. This is theology. A whole, you know, a whole book of the New Testament is really in large part about this one truth. Let us then with confidence draw near and pray our prayers. You say, what does this have to do with obedience? Because we started out this message talking about obedience. But now this whole truth makes it almost seem like obedience doesn't matter, right? It almost looks like these two truths are against each other. On the one hand, I started by saying prayer mixed with married to obedience is powerful, 
And now I've come along, we've looked at, you know, in the book of Hebrews, and at this whole truth about Jesus being our high priest, and it's like, well, obedience doesn't matter because it's not about me, it's about what Jesus has done. So how do these true truths come together? How can they both be true? How is it that obedience with prayer is powerful, but actually it's not at all about what I've done because it's about what Jesus has done? This almost seems like a license to me not to have to obey. But actually, I'm not even afraid of preaching this point because of that, and here's why I'm not afraid. If you have actually given your life to Christ, if you actually have, you want to obey. You might be very bad at it. You might be very bad at obedience. You might be in your weakness. You might just stink at at actually doing the right thing, and you're just not getting very far yet. But if you've actually given your life to Jesus, deep down in you, you want to obey him. That's why you gave your life to him. If you have absolutely no desire to obey him and you see this as a license for you not to obey, you're probably not saved. Because if you've actually given your life to him, that's what it means to give your life to him, you want to obey. You might not be good at it. You might fail at it all the time. You might be in your weakness. You might just constantly be struggling with stuff. But deep down, if you've given your life to him, you want to obey. And so the amazing thing about this truth is not that it gives us a loophole to not obey. It actually sets us free to obey. Because what it does is it takes off the yoke that I have to be good enough in order to earn something with God, which is a crushing weight that no human being can bear. It takes that yoke off and says, you don't have to earn anything with God because you're standing on what Jesus Christ has done and he's your high priest which then sets you free to do what you actually want to do, which is, oh, no pressure. Now I can press into your, into your presence in prayer because I don't feel condemnation, and I can be filled with your power, and I can grow in my obedience. Now, the thing is, some of you might still be scratching your heads, and you might say, I don't know how, without the pressure of fear and guilt, how a person can do better at obedience than if they have those pressures. But we actually know this to be true in sports. In sports, if you take an athlete who goes into a, a game feeling a deep weight of anxiety and pressure to not make a mistake and have to be perfect, that athlete will not perform as well as an athlete who feels confident, who feels happy that I should be here and I love this and is going in like that. Someone who is weighed down by anxiety is going to be tighter. They're not going to be loose. They're not going to be able to perform it the same way. It's the same with the Christian life. When you're struggling under that burden of condemnation, I've got to earn, I've got to earn, I've got to earn, it keeps you away from God, which is where you need to be in order to be empowered to obey. It keeps you away from where you need to be in order to be empowered to obey. And you know, there's some amazing passages in Scripture, but I want to show you this one in 1 John chapter 3. Incredible passage, 21 to 22, that brings these things together, confidence and obedience and power and prayer. He says this, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Remember I talked about that before? We have got a war against condemnation. Jesus is our high priest. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. We're supposed to have confidence before God. Now look what happens when we have confidence. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Another outrageous promise. I told you they're all over the place. If you would just read your Bibles, you would get excited about prayer. That excites me. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now look at this. Why? Because we keep his commandments. There's the obedience. There's the obedience. 
If our hearts do not condemn us, now we have confidence. Now I'm set free to obey. And when I'm set free to obey, I'm set free to see God do all kinds of incredible things in answer to my prayers. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And what, this, what happens now is that this becomes a joyful circle. A vicious circle is when things feed on each other and bring you into a downward spiral. A joyful circle is when things feed on each other and bring you up, okay? And so the joyful circle is this. When I realize that Jesus is my high priest and I'm set free from condemnation, I enter into the presence of God, not based on what I've done. And when my thoughts accuse me, I can just say, it's not about me flesh. It's not about me, devil. I'm not here because I deserve it. I'm here because Jesus is my high priest. I'm standing on what he is, not who I am. And so now I draw near in confidence. I can do that 365 days a year for the rest of my life because he's always my high priest forever, eternity. Hebrews makes that point too. So now I'm set free from condemnation, which as I begin to realize that and I pray my big prayers to him, it fills me with joy. And like Jesus, now I pray, and for their sake, I consecrate myself. I'm free to obey now because I'm not, I'm not laboring under this thing that I've got to earn it. It sets me free to obey more. It sets me free to con- be consecrate myself more, which then I see more power in my prayers and more answers to prayer. And I'm going to tell you, when you see more answers to, to your prayers, and I've experienced this in my own life, the more you see answers to your prayers, the more loved you feel by God. And the more loved you feel by God, you're less and less feeling condemned. You go to prayer and you feel like, I belong here. And God loves me and he keeps answering my prayers. This is amazing, which frees you from condemnation, which frees you to obey more, which frees you to see more of God's power in your life, which frees you from condemnation. It's actually addictive. It's just outright addictive. I have to warn those of you with an addictive personality. personality, This joy circle is addictive. Free from condemnation sets you free to obey. You see more of God's power work in your prayer life. Over and around and around the circle you go as you're filled with joy and you see God working in your life. So, practically speaking, what does this look like? Let's just take a couple of examples before we finish here. So let's imagine you're here today and one of your big prayer requests for 2017 is, I'm praying for my marriage, okay? Maybe that's, you're here today, you're praying for your marriage. Maybe your, your marriage is just struggling huge. Maybe your marriage is just blah, and you just don't want it to be blah. And you would love to have joy and intimacy and for your marriage to be a joy in your life and a testimony to others. And so that's what you're praying. Well, how do you pray in light of these truths? Well, first of all, you know now that Jesus is your high priest. You can go to, you can go to prayer with confidence and pray these big prayers for your marriage. But now, as you pray these big prayers for your marriage, your prayer life is not on an island from the rest of your life. Just like Jesus showed us, at the same time we offer up our, lo- our prayers, we offer up our lives together with our prayers, and that's what makes them powerful. So now I pray, Lord, I want my marriage to grow in joy. I want it to intimacy. So, but now you don't just finish there. Before you leave your prayer time, you say, and now, Lord, I offer myself up to you. And then you remember, the Bible actually says a number of things to you about being a spouse in a marriage like that. Ephesians 5, for example, says, wives, respect your husbands. And also says, husbands, uh, give yourself up for your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So now at the same time that you've been praying for your marriage, now you say, well, Lord, I can't just pray for my marriage and not offer myself up to you in the marriage. And now you say, Lord, if you're the wife, you say, Lord, I, I pray you would show me this week ways that I can absolutely respect him and build him up and encourage him. And you say, but my husband doesn't deserve it. Do you want your prayers answered or not? 
So you, for their sake, I offer up myself. So this is what I'm praying for. But now I'm going to be a part of this with you, Jesus. This is where the power is. Or you're the husband and you're praying, Lord, this is what I want for my marriage. And then God says, now you give yourself up for her like I gave myself up for the church. Ooh, that's a big calling. Lord, show me this week how I can give myself up and die for her. And as you begin to pray like that, at the same time you offer up your prayers, you offer up your life your prayers are going to explode because God's going to change your life and his power is going to flow into you. And you're praying to him without condemnation. And now you're set free to offer your life up to him. Or you're praying for a, a kid and you want God to do big things in your kid's life. Some kid that's been away from the Lord maybe for years or something. And so you're praying from Lord, I want them to, to know you. But then you don't finish your prayer there. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. So you say, Father, at the same time that I offer up these big prayers, I offer up myself to you. And Lord says, I want you to forgive so-and-so. What does that have to do with, with my kid getting saved? It has everything to do with it. Because you don't just offer up your prayers on an island. You offer up your life with your prayers. That's where the power is. Prayer and obedience mixed together. So you say, yes, sir, Lord. And you begin to work on that forgiveness. I will not live with this unforgiveness in my life. Or maybe God says to you, you, you know, you're, on, you're watching the TV two, three, four hours a night. I want you to turn it off four nights a week. I want you to serve. I want you to start building some relationships. There's all kinds of things you could do with your time to serve my kingdom and to serve your family. And you say, what does that have to do with my kid getting saved? It has everything to do with your kid getting saved. For their sake, I consecrate myself. This is the joyful circle. Free from condemnation means free to obey, means more power in my prayers, which sends me through the cycle again. It's an awesome thing. And so again, I put those words up again. I've quoted them a bunch of times and I hope they just drive themselves into our hearts. John 17, 19, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So here's what I want to finish with, a little challenge. I'm going to spend just a, a moment in prayer now, and then we'll finish with worship. I want you to take a moment now. I want you to think about the biggest prayer request in your life right now. Or maybe you have a couple. You can't just then let them both come to your mind. And this is the way I want you to pray this week. But we're going to do it right now here too. But we're going to mix prayer and obedience. I want you to think about the biggest prayer request in your life right now. And then I want you to quietly pray this. I'm going to give you a moment to do this. But at the same time as I pray this request, I'm also giving you myself. Whatever you want, I'm yours. Okay? At the same time as I pray this request, I'm also giving you myself. Whatever you want, I'm yours. We're just going to take a moment. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to bow your heads. So you bring that big request to your mind right now, that big request you've been asking the Lord for 2017. Lord, at the same time we pray these requests, we're also giving you ourselves. Whatever you want, we are yours. Now we're just going to listen a moment, and maybe God will bring something to your mind. Jot it down. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being our high priest. I can pray to you right now in this service based on what you've done, not based on what I've done. It's amazing. We can come to you with confidence. It's amazing. And this week as we pray our big prayer requests, Lord, we are not just going to pray and then go and live. We're going to at the same time as we pray, we're going to offer you up our lives. Would you 
draw us in by your Holy Spirit, enabling us to do that. Would you empower us and encourage us? And then I pray that every big prayer request that was prayed about this morning here, that you're going to answer our big prayers this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.